Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, one of the hosts on the channel. Today, I'm very pleased to say we have Sir Max Hastings on the show, and we'll be talking about his terrific book, Vietnam, An Epic Tragedy, 1945 to 1975. As I was telling Sir Max in the pre-interview, I know something about the Vietnam War. My uncle fought there, actually, and I've been interested in it for a very long time, and I've read a lot about it, and I've even uh, written a book about it myself, so I was very excited to see that Max Max Hastings, who, as you know, is a very, very well-known journalist and military historian, had written a book on the Vietnam War, and I I was very pleased to read it, and I think it's really terrific, and I want to recommend it to you, all of our listeners, and I also want to say to Max, welcome to the show. Thanks, my dear Marshall. So perhaps you could begin by telling us just a few words about yourself. I'm a reformed journalist who spent um, my young days working for BBC and various newspapers, all over the world, and um, I reported from 11 wars in various places, notably including Vietnam. And I came out of the U.S. Embassy compound in uh, April 1975, a few hours before it was finally abandoned. Um, and then I started writing military history books, uh, and then I spent 16 misspent years as editor-in-chief of the Daily Telegraph and Evening Standard. And then I've been, since then, I've been back writing books. And I think one very important thing I'd like to say about when I started out, I thought that writing books about wars meant writing books about soldiers and battles. But actually, I've learned since it's much more one's really writing social history as much as military history. And I'm absolutely I've become ever more fascinated by the plight of victims and especially women and what wars mean to them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's, that's very interesting. And th- there are a lot of victims in this book. Let me ask you this, and, and I think you've probably been asked this question quite a bit. There are a lot of books about Vietnam. Why did you write another one? Most of the books about Vietnam have been written by Americans and mostly about Americans. And I couldn't get out of my mind the fact that um, although 58,000 Americans died in Vietnam, this was above all an Asian tragedy in which 40 Vietnamese died for um, for every American, although, in truth, nobody knows that modern Vietnamese claim that 3 million Vietnamese died in the war. Um, I don't know, but a figure between 2 and 3 million seems credible. And I wanted to put the Vietnamese back in the center of the stage. Of course, a lot of this is about um, the Americans because their policy decisions and, um, and what the U.S. Army did was a huge force in, in what happened. But um, I spent a lot of time, both in Vietnam and in the United States, um, interviewing Vietnamese, communists and anti-communists, as well as American veterans. And it's trying to get a global perspective on this. Another thing I thought very important, some Americans, I think, adopt an almost flagellatory attitude to the war. Oh, God, oh, God, it was all our fault. Well, yes, it's unquestionably true that Americans did um, some, even many, terrible things in Vietnam, and there was a terrible ruthlessness and recklessness in the, in the use of firepower, which caused a lot of people to lose their lives. But even when I was a young correspondent there, 
I never believed that because the American cause seemed doomed, that that made the other, the other side the good guys. And remembering back, I did think that the, the young protesters, whom I used to see in 67, 68, when I was living in the U.S., they were right that the war was a catastrophe, but I believed then, and I believe even more now, that they were wrong in thinking that that made the other side's cause a good one, that Ho Chi Minh and his acolytes ran a, a totalitarian state, which did terrible things to their own people. And tourists who go to Vietnam now, and of course they're shown all the exhibits of quotes, American war crimes, unquotes, and so on, absolutely nothing is said about communist crimes, about the thousands who were brutally murdered uh, in the course of land reform when Ho Chi Minh took over the country, about many more thousands who were killed as class enemies, and how the Viet Cong down south, it wasn't all a question of, of the heroic Viet Cong um, um, having the, the, the um, unqualified support of millions of South Vietnamese peasants. Terrorism was built into the whole Viet Cong war effort. And the number of stories that one has heard and read um, in the course of researching this book about the dreadful things that the communists did in convincing um, South Vietnamese peasants out there in the boonies that the price of, uh, of rejecting the revolution was much worse than mere death. You were liable to be buried alive in front of your fellow villagers. You were liable to be... Um, to be um, eviscerated um, in front of a large crowd, and I mean literally eviscerated, you are liable to see your children castrated. Now, none of this, I would say again, makes the Americans and their incredibly incompetent South Vietnamese client government the heroes of the war. It just means that like almost all events in history, that um, neither side had a monopoly of virtue um, or misconduct. And what I've tried to do, I mean, in some ways, I expect my book will probably annoy both sides because one has tried, one has, well, I hope, I hope it does in some degree that, that one has tried to say, look, um, um, here's some of the terrible things that were done, but also um, within the framework of a, of a huge strategic misjudgment, I met and read about and have written about a lot of Americans who went to Vietnam with the highest ideals and did great things. And I mean, there was a guy, for example, people like I mean, foreign service officers like Frank Scotton and Doug Ramsey and so on, who um, believed passionately in the Vietnamese, cared about them, learned the language, uh, who worked tirelessly um, um, out in that country for years to try and give them something better than they got. And I think those people have been shortchanged in all the horror stories about My Lai and all the rest of it. Not that My Lai wasn't a horror story, but what about the thousands? of um, perfectly innocent Vietnamese who were executed in cold blood uh, by the Viet Cong and the North Vietnamese when they occupied Hue during the Tet Offensive and were buried in mass graves for no worse crime than that of opposing the revolution. And so all the time, all the way through, one is, is trying to see this from both sides. Yeah, no, I quite, I quite agree with you there. Um, I, I was trying to think of a good, uh, the subtitle of your book is An Epic Tragedy, 1945-1975. I was thinking that an almost, uh, a, 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 a subtitle that might be just as apt would be something like, uh, Max Hastings puts a plague on all their houses because nobody really, <laughs> nobody really comes off very well in this book. Um, and I would actually like to start. Nobody comes, 
nobody comes out that um, Marshall. Nobody comes out that well out of wars. I mean, one another mistake I think that's made is that some people are trying to convince themselves that the Vietnam War it was somehow unique in being qualitatively awful. But the longer that I've studied wars, and the more I come to believe the Second World War was an exception in that the, the good guys and the bad guys were more clearly defined than they have been in any war in, in modern history. And the struggle had um, a sort of um, pretty good ending. Uh, well, that is not true of most wars. I'm afraid most wars are incredibly messy and they're incredibly ugly. And in, in terms of my own writing about wars, um, there's a quote that um, I don't have written on my study wall um, because I know it by heart. But when I was young, I grew up in a household in which my father and all the men in our family banged on about what wonderful adventures they had in the Second World War and what fun it all was. And as a teenager, I grew up um, thinking that wars um, were a sort of glorious romp um, laid on to amuse callous young men like myself. And really, my career has been a sort of journey in terms of learning that, of course, wars are not remotely like that. For although there are some young men, men, men who get a terrific kick out of them to this day, as they always have, um, that for most people, and especially women, they're unspeakable. And there's a quote um, by a Norwegian World War II resistance hero called Knut Hansen. And he was a very brave man who did great things uh, in occupied Norway during the war. And yet he wrote in his memoirs in 1948, he said, although wars bring adventures that stir the heart, the true nature of war is composed of innumerable personal sacrifices and tragedies, wholly evil and not redeemed by glory. And to me, this is a very important statement about all wars, and it's something that um, every page I sit down to write is always in my mind. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, even World War II, which does has the you know, people will talk about it as the good war in the United States and so on and so forth. As you well know, because I read your work on the bombing campaign, Bomber Command and things like this, there are some very untoward things that the Allies did in World War well, II. Well, always are. But yeah. it, it, it's, nobody, comes out of, nobody comes out of any war without being morally compromised. Almost everybody I've ever met who tells the truth about their own role in any given conflict, not just Vietnam, um, comes home having done some things that they're ashamed of. Because when you're involved with life and death, um, when you're, a, um, as young men are, generally pretty callous in possession of lethal weapons, and you're on the battlefield and you're tired or hungry, or dirty, um, ignorant, thirsty, you've got constipation or diarrhea, um, you've got your rifle on a, on, a, on a hair trigger because only that way can you yourself hope to survive. It, it would be amazing if the half-educated adolescents who do most of the fighting of our wars um, don't make mistakes and sometimes dreadful mistakes. What I, what I think did make Vietnam worse was that I think a lot of grunts, um, the soldiers, behaved um, no better and no worse than you'd expect of soldiers in any war. But the bad part was that many of their commanders were inexcusably callous about the Vietnamese. There was a racism. There was a belief that Vietnamese lives mattered less than Rwandais' lives. And that pervaded an awful lot of what Americans did. And when you remember some of those terrifying statistics, 
four million tons of American bombs dropped on South Vietnam. I mean, that is that, that almost unbelievable. And again and again, in um, firefight situations and so on, uh, that in, in order to support and protect American troops on the battlefield, nobody really cared um, um, whether the bombs and the, um, the shells that were landing um, killed, killed Vietnamese. So in that sense, um, it, it was wars among the people um, are always pretty brutal, where there's a lot of civilians on the battlefield. But um, Vietnam was about as bad as it gets in that respect. Yeah, one of the quotations you begin the book with, there are three, but one of them, I don't know whether it made me want to laugh or cry, but I'm just going to read it for the audience. And it, it is a, a content warning introducing the 1917 Ken Burns Novik series, The Vietnam War, that I imagine many people who listen to this podcast watched. And uh, they told the audience, quote, this film contains mature content, strong language, and graphic violence. Viewer discretion is advised. Well, I'm afraid that is, I mean, I, I, I always remember one of my own experiences. Again, you think, when you think of all the movies we all saw as kids, in which everybody dies with no blood being visible. And one of, one of the moments in my own career as a war correspondent, when I was in Vietnam, one day, about 1972 or 73 or something, I was driving um, up somewhere in a jeep north of Saigon, and I had to stop. It was early in the morning, and there were a group of um, South Vietnamese soldiers dragging the bodies of um, dead uh, Viet Cong who'd been killed in a firefight during the night out across the road. And I saw that one guy they were dragging who was almost naked, and um, his guts were hanging out of his stomach and trailing um, maybe six or seven feet behind the body as it was trailed through the dust. And as I saw that sitting in that Jeep, I thought to myself, if I was hit in the stomach like that, that's how my guts would look. And it was a very chilling moment, and it stayed with me ever since, that um, that you just try. I don't think it does any of us any harm. I'm not a pacifist at all. Um, I do passionately believe that we should be willing to fight in defense of our vital interests. But it's always in my mind what an unbelievably uh, dirty, ugly business not only wars are, but, but dying and killing are. That Very few people die, quotes, cleanly, that almost everybody dies in a horribly messy way. I mean, I've, I've quoted in the book an episode that made a great impression on me that um, a Texan nurse called Shirley Purcell um, she wrote a narrative, which I found in the um, military history archive up at Carlisle, a very moving narrative. She said, I, I didn't really have a political commitment. I, I went to active duty in 1966 because there were American troops who, who needed help. And she described one episode where a young American soldier who'd trodden on a so-called bouncing Betty mine um, was brought into their emergency unit. and. Um, she said um, he'd been almost literally ripped in half by this mine, and she said um, uh, the whole of his middle body was, was gone, was just, she used the phrase, hamburger meat. And she said, um, but his top half and his bottom half were still completely undamaged. And she said his mind was still there. And she said the sense of, of unbelievable frustration and impotence that ran through their unit um, with all this medical experience and equipment, there was absolutely nothing they could do uh, for this poor kid. And um, 
he he looked up from his litter and he said, how does it look? And she said, I, I had to say to him, it, it doesn't look good, but you won't be alone. And she said, um, that was really all we had to offer him, that he wouldn't be alone. And she said she'd been a teetotaler all her life. And yet in the officer's club at Tulai, uh, she started on screwdrivers and who could blame her. And she wrote that, She'd never afterwards, after Vietnam, been able to watch MASH on TV because her memories um, imposed a veto on, on laughter. Yes. Um, well, let's get into the historical weeds a little bit. As I say, uh, this book is highly critical of most everybody involved. Let's begin with the French. Um, uh, the, the, the French uh, controlled uh, Indochina, uh, Cochin China at the time, and uh, you are quite critical of their desire to have the empire back after World War II, yeah. Well, it's, but what you, what you always have to try and do, uh, Marshall, or, or what I try and do, I think one of the biggest mistakes a lot of historians make is that they look at things from the perspective of the 21st century, from where we are now. And I try to start in a different place. I shut my eyes and I try and think, how did things look to people then? And in 1945, um, when France was liberated, that the French had suffered this unspeakable humiliation of defeat and occupation by the Nazis. And they were desperate to reassert um, their national status. Um, and um, I, I've quoted French leaders saying, saying to their people, they said, if we're just France, we're almost nothing. But if we have our empire, we're a great power. And the British were in many ways in the same place. Now, we got lucky because um, the British voters in 1945 had the sense to elect a Labour government um, which got Britain out of India and Burma very quickly, thank heavens. I personally believe that if the Conservatives and Churchill had got back in, they might have tried to hang on, and it could have been a terrible mess. Um, but the French, they tried to hang on in Algeria, and they fought an unspeakably bloody war to hold Algeria. They tried to hang on in Madagascar, where in 1948 they killed 90,000 local people to suppress a revolt. And they were determined to hang on in Indochina. And what was amazing was that um, the United States had spent the whole of World War II telling the colonial powers, the British, the Dutch, the, uh, the French, that the days of empire were over and all people have got to get out. But then the Cold War gets going and suddenly um, governments of the United States convinced themselves that the cause of colonialism is also the cause of anti-communism. So by 1952, here are the French fighting a very dirty war in Indochina and in Vietnam especially to hold on to their empire. And they suddenly realize they're losing this. And they want to get out. But Washington says, no, 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 no. You've got to, you've got to keep, hang on in there and, and see these commie bastards off. And to that end, by about 52, every bomb and shell the French fired was being paid for by the United States. And um, French soldiers were fighting, wearing American helmets, driving American jeeps, flying American planes, um, and using American weapons, so that it wasn't too surprising that when 10 years later um, the U.S. Army turns up, um, the, the wretched Vietnamese say, aha, um, it's, the, it's the children of the colonialists. Um, and after um, uh, the French eventually did quit, quit Vietnam in 1954, very belatedly, and the country was partitioned with um, the communists taking possession of the North. And the United States was absolutely determined that the communists should not get 
um, South Vietnam. And um, to that end, uh, they poured money in to support the regime, and then they started pouring soldiers in. Um, and some people say to me, I mean, under Jack Kennedy, they had 16,000 advisors in the country. And I often hear people saying in audiences, oh, well, if Jack Kennedy had lived, he'd have got America out of Vietnam. I'm not so sure. I think that the American people at that stage, and especially, of course, the Republican right, um, were... Uh, they, they believed that nothing was impossible for a nation as, as, as mighty and as rich as the United States. And to believe that a bunch of raggedy-ass communist guerrillas could see off the full might of the United States, that would not have been a message that any American president wanted to give to the American people in the 1950s or indeed in the 1960s. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I quite agree with everything you just said. I mean, it's, it's, very, I mean, it's very important to put the French... Uh, sort of mindset uh, into play here because they clearly did want to hang on to this notion that they were, a, a, I guess what you would say, a world power. So anyway, in 1954, of course, they are defeated at uh, Dien Bien Phu and uh, it, it, their negotiation is, um, or their uh, withdrawal is negotiated. And it's not as if the United States actually takes over at this point because in 54, the country is divided. And here I wanted to ask you kind of a, a question, which this does come up, and there are people that uh, will say this, that in fact, after 54, when the country was divided, uh, there was a, a moment at which things could have remained in the kind of Korean-like fashion, that is with the North and the South Vietnam. But in fact, this is what some of these people will say, the uh, North invaded the South, or they... Um, well, it's much yeah, more complicated than that. And one of the things that's fascinating about writing these books is you learn a lot of stuff that you, you, you that I, for one, certainly didn't know when I started writing this book. Now, in defense of successive U.S. administrations, one thing that bears saying is that there really was um, relentless communist expansionism in the 1940s and 1950s. The idea there was uh, no communist threat, there really was a communist threat. That um, for, In the late 40s, there were real fears that um, Greece, even France and Italy, might fall under um, communist rule. And all over the world, the communists were pushing forward. But... What um, successive American administrations got wrong, they, didn't, they thought that the Russians and the Chinese were pulling the levers in Vietnam, and they weren't. All the way through, the Russians and Chinese were very unkeen. They didn't like the Vietnamese, and the Russians, who ended up giving them half a billion dollars a year in aid, which the Russians could very ill afford, um, absolutely, the Vietnamese treated them unbelievably badly, unbelievably rudely. And they gave them no thanks at all. They just told them to keep the weapons coming and otherwise shut up. And there was a moment when Brezhnev was ruling Russia later, when he said to um, the Russian ambassador in Washington that I have no desire to sink into the swamps of Vietnam. And yet, so poor was Western intelligence that in Washington, up to the very end, Nixon and Kissinger were convinced that um, all the Russians had to do was pick up the phone to Hanoi and the whole thing would be over, and it wasn't like that at all. The Russians and Chinese were very unkeen to support the war. And yeah, there is a scenario um, I can see, if you go back to the 1950s, if President Diem, who'd been parachuted in, a Catholic, into a Buddhist country, um, who'd made friends uh, among Catholics in the United States, and among the French, but who had no real support in Vietnam itself, if he'd ruled in a 
reasonably enlightened way, um, then you can see a scenario where just like South Korea, that um, South Vietnam prospered. It was a fundamentally pretty rich place, the rice bowl of Asia. But Diem was, I don't think he was a wicked man, but he had a lot of wicked people around him. And um, he ruled unbelievably incompetently. He was obsessed with promoting Catholics, which enraged the, uh, most of his fellow countrymen. Um, he broke a promise that he wouldn't persecute the old Viet, Viet Minh um, um, revolutionaries. Um, and um, he, re he made a terrible hash of it. And in the first stages that North Vietnam had so many problems of its own, not least the fact that its population was starving, um, that the North Vietnamese didn't, in Ho Chi Minh did not want to intervene in the South. It was South, South Vietnamese communists acting on their own um, who, uh, who were the ones who really got things uh, started again down South. Um, and if Diem had, had displayed just a little more enlightened rule, uh, he might have survived and, um, and his regime might have survived. And today, South Vietnam might be a prosperous independent state, just like, um, just like South Korea. Um, but of course, counterfactuals mm -hmm. don't get you too far because it didn't no, work out like that. And it wasn't, if I recall correctly, it wasn't until 1960 that actually the North activated the Viet, what is what came to be called the Viet Cong in the South. Well, even was a little bit later, later I mean, well, yeah. even it was really oh, was 62. It, it was uh -huh. about 62 that they really um, started in. And the other thing that Western intelligence didn't understand. Everybody all the way through thought Ho Chi Minh was pulling the levers. And he, of course, was the figurehead, a man of terrific um, personality, um, immensely respected and admired around the world. Although, personally, I think he was a lot nastier than people appreciated. But the fact remained that Ho Chi Minh, from about 62, 63 on, was completely marginalized. The country was run by this guy, Lais Van, who was an absolutely ruthless revolutionary, who cared nothing for how many hundreds of thousands or millions of his own people died to create, to turn Vietnam into a unified Stalinist state. And, um, and Lais Van was, was pulling the levers all the way through, and Ho Chi Minh had become a figurehead. And um, I mean, a CIA officer I interviewed for the book, I mean, he was saying not until 1969 um, was the United States um, able to draw up a so-called wiring diagram of what the South Vietnamese leadership, uh, North Vietnamese leadership really looked like, um, because intelligence was so poor. Um, and I, I do sometimes wonder, when one sees today in, in uh, Afghanistan and Syria and Iraq, we still have the same problems. We can never get these foreign interventions right until we know what else is going on in these countries. And the general standard of intelligence um, is almost always abysmally poor, however many billions everybody spends. And, and unless we can get that bit right, then you can send all the soldiers in the world and you're never going to be able to make your will prevail. Mm -hmm. Well, let's move the narrative forward just a little bit or the story. And um, uh, one of the things that's interesting uh, in the book and, and I think is interesting about this period in general is how worried uh, these successive American administrations were those being the Kennedy and the Johnson administration, about Jim uh, falling and South Vietnam falling. And it was really in response to this worry about that regime that the United States became involved. Is that right? Well, it's always the same story. The trouble is um, it, it's, the, it's, it's, it's the tar baby. But um, once you get into another country and you feel the prestige of your own country is at stake, um, I mean, a very good line going back to Kennedy 
um, and the people who say, oh, well, if Kennedy had lived, he'd have got America out. And I'm very impressed by the amount of evidence that Kennedy repeatedly told those around him um, that he just, although he realized that South Vietnam was a shambles, that he didn't feel able to pull out. Uh, he said to J.K. Galbraith, his very influential economic advisor, only a few weeks before his own death, um, he said there's only just so many concessions that I could make to the communists in any one year and expect the American people to re-elect me. And all the way through, um, right back from the 50s, it, it's, it's sort of spooky how far um, decisions about Vietnam were being made in Washington without a single Vietnamese being present around the conference table. And they were being made entirely with regard to American um, considerations of American policy. And every electoral election that comes around, you've got um, um, near um, hysteria um, around the White House about how can we um, make these things work to, um, to win the next election. And I mean, one of the stories that made the greatest impression on me, if you go towards the end of the story, when Nixon becomes uh, president, the beginning of 69, neither he nor his national security advisor, Henry Kissinger, are under the slightest delusion that the Vietnam War is winnable. But all they're interested in is, is getting out without having to confess to the American people and the American electorate that they've lost. And what is really terrifying is that 22,000 more Americans died on Nixon's watch and countless more Vietnamese and Lao and Cambodians, all while they're trying to figure out um, how to conceal from the American people that this is a lost war. And um, there's a moment, um, the, 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 the last round of White House tapes of the Nixon-Kissinger conversations about Vietnam were only released in about 2015, um, and brilliantly edited by Ken Hughes. And, um, and reading the transcripts is, is it's almost unbelievable. Kissinger um, was, if anything, more cynical than Nixon. And um, all the way through, Kissinger refers to the American electoral cycle. How are we going to fix this for 72? How are we going to hold up South Vietnam until we can just get through for maybe six months after the 72 election and so on? And he goes on and on, more than Nixon about this. And there's a, to me, devastating moment when October 72, a month before Richard Nixon faces George McGovern um, as a Democratic candidate in the presidential election, and um, Kissinger flies back from his secret talks in Paris um, with the North Vietnamese, and he rushes into White House in the Oval Office, and he says, Mr. President, we have got um, a better deal than you could ever have dreamed of. And he doesn't then add, this is going to save countless lives, this is going to bring peace, this is going to do great things for Vietnam. He says, this will absolutely, totally screw McGovern. And this is um, Kissinger, the great statesman. And in that sense, there's absolutely no question that Kissinger uh, is one of the 20th century's great men, uh, that he was a towering figure, um, that uh, he did extraordinary things. He's a very brilliant man. But he's also, I think, an unbelievably cynical one. Um, Henry Kissinger, whom I got to know a bit in later years, uh, he's, he's very good at simulating warmth and geniality. But in truth, he's an absolutely ice-cold human being. And he did what he had to do. Um, he was mandated to get the United States out of Vietnam, and he did it. But he's not entitled to one ounce of gratitude from the Vietnamese people. So I wanted to step back a little bit and talk about unwinnability. 
uh, which took a long time to appear, at least in the minds of the administration. And I want to mention the name of Bernard Fall. I've read a lot of Bernard Fall. Bernard Fall knew a lot about Vietnam. He spent a lot of time there. And he said what I think are some very sensible things. And one of the things that he said quite early on, I believe this was in the was in the mid-60s at the latest, was that it was impossible to win the Vietnam War where win means anything sort of strategically sensible unless you invaded North Vietnam and the United States refused to do that. Could you talk a little bit about Paul's sort of understanding, yeah. I think that I think there's a lot of I think there's a lot of truth in that. It gave um, the Viet the North Vietnamese a huge advantage that they could see pretty early on that the United States, I, I think, entirely wisely set its face against invading North Vietnam because one's got to remember in the '60s everybody was learning the meaning of limited war, and while generals hate limited war, generals almost always like to feel that if you're going to have a war, let's throw everything we've got at the enemy. But actually, in the nuclear age, um, limited wars are the only sensible way to do anything yeah. once one idea has got I'm to glad be. to hear you say that. And yeah. Got to be, yeah, that's true. There's got to be proportionality between the ends you're pursuing and the means you use. And um, as it was, the means the United States used in, uh, in, in Vietnam were overdone. But I think there's something much more important, which Fall sort of touched on, but um, but I think it's still just as relevant today to um, Iraq and Afghanistan and Syria. You can win all the firefights you like. You can go on killing the bad guys as long as you want, and it means nothing at all unless you've got some cultural, um, social, political linkage with the local people. And um, a conversation that made a huge impression on me, and I've quoted in the book, about 2004, 2005, I was having lunch with that great American H. Armored Master um, in London, and he was describing to me what his armored cab regiment had done in um, their successes uh, against the bad guys in Iraq in 2004. And he ended up, he said, the problem was there was nothing to join up to. Now, of course, what he meant is that once the shooting stopped and you looked at all the dead enemies and all the rest of it, where's our side? Where are, where are the local people that we can join up to, to create? A, and I saw him later again in Afghanistan, and I said, isn't it still the same problem, HR? There's nothing to join up to. And um, another, um, that very fine um, journalist, uh, Neil Sheehan, who wrote that brilliant book, A Bright Shining Light. And when I put that com those conversations to Neil Sheehan, who, of course, was in Saigon in the, throughout the early 60s. And he said it was the same problem in Vietnam. There was nothing to join up to. And unless you can get the, uh, the cultural and social linkage with people, which uh, Americans never achieved, the other side, I mean, to quote a Vietnamese, whom I interviewed in California, now a very successful businessman in California. And he said to me when I was interviewing out there in 2016, and he said, the problem was, he said, the other side had the monopoly of patriotism. Ho Chi Minh was the guy who defeated the French colonialists and driven them out. Nobody in the South had that sort of prestige. And he said, all the time, the communists were able to remind us how humiliating it was to be occupied by the Americans. And I've said in my book that I believe the fundamental reason that the, the other side won is not because they were awesomely brilliant soldiers, though they were pretty good. Um, it was because they were Vietnamese. And all the time, 
I mean, the, the, the Vietnamese are not too keen on foreigners, even in a good day, <laughs> however, polite they may, uh, however polite they may be to um, American tourists now when, when they want your money. Um, but in those days, all they really wanted, and I, I see this in Afghanistan and Iraq too, people in these societies, they want all these dreadful foreigners to go away. And um, it, was, it was always Americans, many Americans went into Vietnam with high ideals. They wanted to do good things for these societies. But it's so difficult, if not impossible, to overcome this problem that if you're living in a tribal society, out in whether it's in Vietnam or in, in, in Iraq or Afghanistan and so on, um, you want to do things your way and the American way or the Western way, because the British have screwed up just as badly in Afghanistan. Um, it doesn't matter that our way is much better than their way. Their way is how they want to do it. And it was, it was I, I would say, absolutely, if somebody said, what is the, the why in one sentence uh, did the other side, the communists, the bad guys win? And I still think they are the bad guys, uh, win the Vietnam War, I'd say, because they were Vietnamese. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's fundamental. Yeah. I wondered if you could talk a little bit about, you mentioned limited war, and I, I know that in my own research concerning how the United States conducted the war, that we took a lot of lessons, we, that is the United States here, uh, a lot of lessons from the British in Malaysia. And these lessons were applied in a kind of ham-fisted fashion. I'm rec- I recall the ink spot strategy in Malaysia. One of the things that the British do ourselves no favor, no favors is we will keep turning up uh, on um, American theaters of war and telling, um, and telling the Americans how much better we understand it than they do. And because I, I have a lot of dealings with the American military, and they're always terribly polite, but actually they get unbelievably pissed off um, with British officers who say, well, if you just listen to what we did in Malaya or what we did in Northern Ireland and so on. Well, actually, first of all, the evidence of recent history suggests that, I mean, I have great respect and affection for the British Army, but um, they, have, they encounter all these problems we're talking about just as much as anybody else does. As anybody else does. And the idea that the British... Malaya, yes, the British had a success in Malaya against, um, against communist insurgents, but there were huge differences. Virtually nothing that they'd done in Malaya was relevant to Vietnam. First of all, Vietnam was on a much bigger scale. Second, the insurgents in Malaya had been part of a minority Chinese community who most of the Malays intensely disliked. And thirdly, the British had made it plain. Yeah, this this point particularly, though, yeah, that point particularly, I think, is very germane. And the Americans did not see that. And it goes right back to your other point, is that there was huge anti-communist sentiment in Malaya. But they also, <laughs> it was the British enormous, made it plain that, and it could just that, be taken we advantage of. Yeah. And um, so um, the British had a whole load of stuff going for them in, in Malaya that nobody did in, in Vietnam, where you've got this thousand-mile um, open western border into Laos and Cambodia and all the rest of it. And, um, and yeah, I mean, I, I, some British soldiers, I mean, our, our, um, our sort of supreme security commander out there was a very smart guy, General Templer. Um, but I'm another of my very strong theories, because I believe that you've always got to see in these counterinsurgency situations, you've got to see the cultural and the social dimensions of what matters most. And I would never put a general in overall charge. Um, sure, you need the generals to run the military side of it, but because most of the problems are political and cultural, I would never let, you know, generals are trained in the end to fight people, and why should they understand anything about the, um, the cultural problems of Southeast Asia and all the rest of it? And, um, and 
they just it, it's just not what they do. And I personally, I do not think it's fair to blame General Westmoreland or um, General Abrams or, or most of the other American commanders. Not that they were the most brilliant commanders in history, but I don't believe that um, that Alexander the Great could have uh, won the war in Vietnam. There was a there was a there was a, <laughs> a, a very very smart American whom I talked to for the book, David Elliot, who lived out there and researched for Rand for years. And David Elliott said to me, he said, there never was a clever way to fight the war. And in the end, I think responsibility for the bad decisions, it has to go with the presidents and with, um, and this is always true. I mean, um, in, our, in our own case, with, with, uh, with Iraq, that I think it was a huge mistake that uh, um, Tony Blair, our prime minister, signed up with George W. Bush to go into Iraq. Um, uh, but and um, yes, it is true that our soldiers, when they were asked if they could send a division and do it, they said they could. But that's what soldiers do. And but if you go back to the 1960s, um, that when uh, Presidents Kennedy and uh, and Johnson successively they asked the generals if they can do this stuff. Generals have to have to defend vast defence budgets. They've got to defend um, their own um, their own existences, and it is not surprising when they're told, "Can you go and defeat a raggedy assed um, guerrilla army out there in the boonies?" They say, "Absolutely, Mr. President." And what would the president say? Just supposing that the Joint Chiefs had said to first Kennedy and then to Johnson later, "I'm terribly sorry, Mr. President, we." I think the U.S. Army is really properly configured to fight a jungle war, blah, blah, blah. Um, how would they have come out of that? So I think in the end, the politicians who make these um, decisions and often very bad decisions, they are the ones who have to take the rap for this. Mm-hmm. Well, we're, uh, we've taken up a lot of your time and I really appreciate it, but I want to come to what is probably a, a sort of inevitable part of a conversation about Vietnam and a big book about Vietnam and a big, excellent book about Vietnam. And that is the so-called lessons of uh, tragedies like this and whether we have learned them or not. And I guess one thing I might want to say is there are those who feel that it, it is true the United States lost the Vietnam War, but on the other hand, it played an important part in staving off communism in various ways throughout the globe. And therefore, it is at least um, at, at a kind of at a, at a second derivative or higher order of generalization somewhat defensible. And that those 60,000 lives of Americans and millions of Vietnamese, were, they did not die in vain because ultimately communism was defeated. Could you respond to that line? Yeah, I mean, it's a view. One, one, what I always try and do in all my books is to, is to um, explain what other points of view are, even if I don't buy them. And you're absolutely right that there are people in, uh, in Southeast Asia who've argued that the war in, in Vietnam bought time for other nations, uh, notable among them Malaysia and Indonesia and so on, to um, stabilize them and so, themselves and so on. And that uh, by the time um, the communists prevailed in 75 in Vietnam, that a lot of other um, Southeast Asian countries um, or Asian countries were in far better shape to um, survive and thrive as modern democracies um, and were much less vulnerable to communists. Um, I don't think I personally buy into that. Um, but on the other hand, one should be aware it happens. I mean, uh, the conservative writer, Michael Lind, he wrote in a book um, a few years ago. He said, he said, he wrote that, he said, Vietnam was merely a lost 
campaign in what was a victorious Cold War that the United States had to fight. And I'm certainly, I mean, I passionately believe that it's a great thing for the world that the United States led the Western cause in seeing off the communists in the Cold War. So um, in, in that sense, I, I'm absolutely in no doubt that we were very fortunate to be under American leadership in the Cold War. But that still does not make me um, um, enthusiastic about signing up to the view that uh, um, that Vietnam was worthwhile. If, if a lot of people die in a war, people always want to try and find reasons why it was worthwhile. I, I would say something completely different, but I think it's also fascinating. That, um, and I've ended my own book by saying this, that um, that we've learned in the last century, especially, that economics are as important as uh, military factors in deciding outcomes. Well, if you'd asked an American soldier back in, let's say, 1966, how would you like Saigon to look in 2018? Well, actually, pretty much the way Saigon does look now, that um, um, what to me is quite extraordinary is that although, let's be in no doubt at all, um, Vietnam is still a totalitarian dictatorship and a very unpleasant one in which there is great rural poverty and, uh, and in which um, freedom of speech is absolutely denied, that nobody in Vietnam can today have a frank debate about the war. And if you go to Vietnam as a tourist, um, you're going to have an awful long wait if you expect to hear any portion of the truth about what took place during the war. But... Um, American economic values, the one thing that the regime, they've had to give up completely on communist ideology. Everybody's out there making money, including the people <laughs> around the country. It's one of the most corrupt yeah. regimes in the world. And um, they're out there making money. And I, I've said in the last passages of my book that what is extraordinary is that while the United States failed um, with B-52s and spooky gunships and defoliants, I would suggest that Johnny Depp and YouTube have proved irresistible um, that, in fact, it's American um, cultural and economic values that are increasingly dominating the country. And one reason that uh, Vietnamese are so nice to Americans when they go there, half of them they want to be Americans um, in terms of living <laughs> the life. They realize, they do realize, even if they don't dare say it too publicly, that um, um, life as a communist cadre was, was unspeakably dreadful. And um, life in an um, um, American economics-led society is incomparably um, um, more enjoyable and, um, and more fulfilling. So, um, I mean, I, I haven't forgotten uh, a young man, a brilliant young man who, who interpreted for me when I was interviewing in Vietnam for the book, a very bright young man. And he said to me, very fiercely serious-minded young man, as many Asians are, very ambitious, and he said, I only have one ambition. He said, I want to live in a country where I can say what I think. And, um, and it was very striking, the strength of his passion. He was, um, in fact, the same kid, he was telling me quite recently um, that he wasn't sure whether he could actually go back to living in Vietnam, because, which he's now got out of, because he said they're tightening internet censorship all the time. And he said when Vietnam's president died the other day, he said nobody was even told he was ill. And, or even when he died until after he was dead. Um, but all that said, you've got 120 million Vietnamese today, and a staggering number, isn't it? There are 120 million Vietnamese, and most of them, um, they realize, they, they now see what the United States is about, and they have an almost boundless admiration 
for its cultural and economic achievements. And that is somewhere that would make Ho Chi Minh turn in his grave. Um, and um, it seems to me a, a, a remarkable turn of history. Mm, yeah, I'm reminded of, I've spent much of my career studying the Soviet Union and Russia, and I've been there many times. And I'm reminded in the 80s, when I, when I first went there, it was the um, mid to late 80s. And I remember seeing on Red Square, I don't know if it was on Red Square at the time, but it was very close, uh, a Pizza Hut and a McDonald's. And I just said to myself, that's it. We're in. <laughs> Actually, one, another story I enjoyed tremendously. A guy, a guy I interviewed for the book, um, whom I um, liked enormously, lovely man called David Rogers, who was a medical corpsman in Vietnam, um, who talked incredibly movingly about his experiences and the huge effect that he'd had on his whole life. Uh, and he described to me um, how in 1993, he went back to Vietnam as a guest of its government, as a reporter. And um, he said um, he was taken to the area where his unit had fought and where quite a few of his, his platoon had died um, back in the late 60s. And um, he said they were introduced to all these old Viet Cong who'd fought against them in those days, who were all incredibly nice to them because they were under orders to be nice to Americans because they wanted Congress to pass a trade deal. And David Rogers said, I thought to myself, if all these guys want him was a McDonald's, surely we could have sorted this out a long time ago. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, I think there's a great wisdom in that. Yes, no, that's exactly right. I remember seeing that Pizza Hut and McDonald's, and I was just like, yeah, I think this is going to go our way. <laughs> I mean, we don't have to go to war with the Russians or anyone else. This will be fine. Well, um, Sir Max Hastings, I want to say thank you very much for writing this book, and thank you for appearing on the New Books Network. Well, thank you so much, uh, Marshall, for having me. And I can't tell you what a pleasure and a privilege it's been writing this book, partly because it's given me the opportunity and the excuse to travel around the United States and meet Americans on a scale I haven't done since I lived here back in the 60s. Well, that's terrific. Yeah, that's terrific. Well, we're all, you're always welcome, of course. Yes, we know you're in New York right now, so I hope you enjoy it. All right. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Thank you so much, Marshall.